Welcome to Modern Career. I'm your host, Mary Humiston. You may be thinking about changing, advancing, or even reinventing your career. We want to help you do that and live your full potential. In each episode, I cover work and career topics, leveraging my 30 plus years of global HR leadership and through interviews with other career experts and professionals from around the world. Subscribe today and visit modern-career.com for blog posts, career stories, career coaching and workshops, and more. Let's jump into our next episode. Welcome to the next discussion in our Leadership Profile series. Today, we're talking with Adam Bryant. Adam is a respected and noted expert on executive leadership and is the former New York Times columnist of Corner Office, which he created. He also produced the Innovation Report for the New York Times and was the lead editor of a series that earned a Pulitzer for national reporting. He's currently a managing director and partner for Merrick, a leading executive development firm. He works with executives and organizations to foster cultures of innovation based on his best practice framework and his widely praised book, Quick and Nimble. He's also a senior advisor on organizational character and leadership at Columbia University. Welcome, Adam, and thank you so much for being with us. And it's great to be able to learn from you today. Thanks for the invitation, Mary. Let's jump right in with maybe setting the table a little bit. Can you give us a few highlights from your background and some highlights from your career journey to date? So I spent 30 years as a journalist, caught the journalism bug early, dreamed of getting to the New York Times, which I managed to do. And I was a business reporter for almost 10 years there, just covering a lot of different industries, interviewing a lot of CEOs. I went to Newsweek Magazine for six years, and that's when I shifted from reporting to editing, went back to the New York Times. But there was a seed planted in my brain from all those years interviewing CEOs when I was a New York Times reporter. That was really the seed that led to Corner Office, because I realized when you're interviewing CEOs as a business reporter, you're often asking them about strategy and products and the competitive landscape in their industry. And I just found the more time I spent with CEOs, the more I wanted to set those questions aside and just say, how do you do what you do? And they just seemed like really smart and wise. And a lot of them had great senses of humor. I just became really intrigued by them as people. So when I went back to the New York Times, I had this day job managing teams of reporters on different desks. But that's when I started the side project, Corner Office. And it was based on a couple of simple what-ifs. And the main what-if was, what if I sat down with CEOs and never asked them a single question about their companies and just asked them about their backgrounds when they were kids, their parents' influence, leadership lessons, how they hire, advice to new college grads. So that was start of kind of a wonderful adventure and ultimately interviewed 525 CEOs for that before I left in 2017 to join Merrick. I will say the other important what if of Corner Office was What if I interviewed a lot of women and people of color and never asked them any gender or race-specific questions? So to interview everybody as a leader first and only, and to just sort of steer clear of the questions that have unfortunately become a bit all too predictable. So what's it like to be a female CEO? I sort of like, let's try to imagine a world where we go beyond that. And increasingly that world feels out of reach, but I thought it was important to try and make that contribution. So That's a quick overview, and I'm having a great new chapter working with Merrick, where, as you said, we do one-on-one mentoring at the C-suite and also do a lot of work with leadership teams. So my learning curve has been very steep in this new chapter, and that's when I'm happiest. 
Awesome. And so, but prior to being a business reporter, you were on a journalism path. And so that was really a pivot following your passions, I guess, and following your curiosities. It's funny. I mean, even though I spent almost the bulk of my journalism career as a business reporter or editor in business, in many ways, I never felt like a business journalist in the sense that I wasn't really interested. I mean, stocks go up, stocks go down, the economies get stronger, they get weaker. But I always just felt that if you want to understand people and society and behavior, that business is just a great lens for looking at the world. I've always felt that politics, as important as it is, felt a little bit like theater. And I'm ultimately, I'm just kind of, I don't know, like sociologist. I'm just curious of why people do what they do. And again, I've always thought looking at the world through how people spend their money and the companies and how they work together, you just learn a lot about human beings that way. So the corner office, which I would say most people have read and know about and your work with Merrick, but you've also done a lot of research and written books. I mentioned The Quick and Nimble, other books, and you're working on one now. So my first book was called Corner Office. The second one is Quick and Nimble. The first book was really trying to figure out like what are the X factors that separate the very best leaders and explains why people get promoted to the corner office. Because usually people ask the question, what's the key to success? And invariably the answer is some version of hard work and perseverance. So I tried to narrow the question down a little bit and say, well, what explains why people get promoted over everyone else? Quick and Nimble was really trying to answer the question, what are the biggest drivers of culture? Because culture is such an amorphous word. And so it came up with a framework there. And the book that I just finished, my co-author is Kevin Sherrow, the former CEO of Amgen. It's coming out next March from Harvard Business Review Press. It's called The CEO Test. And the subtitle is Master the Challenges that Make or Break All Leaders. And the framework we put on that is, as the subtitle suggests, why do people succeed or fail in leadership roles? And at some level, every leader's job is somewhat similar to a CEO's. I mean, there's lots of things that are unique about a CEO's role, and people often focus on those. But instead, we said, well, what is similar between somebody who's leading a team of 10 people who's a middle manager and what a CEO does? Yes, it's more complicated. There's a lot more breadth and consequences. But what is the same about it? And then how do you do that well? And essentially, we've taken the lessons from my now 600 interviews and Kevin's deep experience as a leader himself and really tried to provide a playbook of how to lead effectively, not just saying what is important, but this is how to do it well. So let's dig into that. What are some of the highlights from all that research, from those different lenses and your most current work? What are some of your top insights that are those things that make or break leaders? And maybe then what are those that really are the same across all levels, whether you're aspiring to be a CEO or not? I'll share a couple. And one of them starts with this simple word that's often used in business, which is the word strategy. And I didn't go to business school. And I kind of always assumed that everybody had a shared understanding of what that word meant. But the more I, time I spend in this world and with clients, the more I've come to realize that word is kind of like a Rorschach test. It's like a classic psychological ink blot, that it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And what has struck me, what I have found is very often you ask people, what is your strategy? And you get a lot of different kinds of answers. I tend to think of it in terms of altitudes. Some people give you a really high altitude. Our strategy, they do this really broad mission and vision, or sometimes it's just kind of a general statement of what business they're in. 
some people dive down into like the 10 initiatives for this quarter. And it has really dawned on me that there's no kind of shared language around what strategy is. And so we highlight this framework that I first heard from Dinesh Palawal, who ran Harmon International. And we, for lack of a better term, we call it a simple plan. And it's basically the four components that he used to have people on his team. It's kind of a one pager and it starts with like, what's a high level description of what you're trying to accomplish. And then you focus on like the three or four levers that you're going to pull to achieve that. What are the three or four headwinds or challenges you have to navigate to achieve success? And lastly, what is kind of the scoreboard by which you're going to measure progress? And we find that's a really helpful kind of grounding document, makes it very tangible. People get lost in all these kinds of different weeds. We find that this idea of the simple word of priorities and Those should be focused on what you are trying to achieve rather than just what you are going to continue to work on. And we could go a lot deeper on that, but just getting a shared understanding in a company that starts at the top, that is simple. And I always recall the test that Joe Jimenez, the former CEO of Novartis, mentioned to me. He said, it's sort of the hallway test. If you stopped everybody in the hallway and said, what's our strategy? If you stop 12 people, you're going to hear the same answer. You're going to hear 12 answers. And in our work, we generally find when we ask that question, we often hear 12 different answers. (laughs) And part of the trap for leaders is that the strategy is often very clear in their head, but it's not as clear in the heads of everybody else because they haven't communicated enough or it's simply too complicated. I mean, we've all seen those kind of strategy decks with like six bullet points and you've got the colored pyramid and the corkscrew arrows and people are supposed to remember that and they can't. So I would say that's one challenge. And I I will apologize for the New York sirens in the background. And, you know, it's sort of at the other end, kind of a less tactical, more of a mindset point. I've really come to appreciate one of the hardest aspects of leadership is this idea of like balancing paradoxes in your head. I often wonder why, I think it's kind of a cosmic question of like, why are there so many bad bosses in the world? And I think one answer to that is, Leadership is hard. And so they go into these roles with kind of like a fixed mindset of like, this is my leadership style. This is my approach. And it tends to be this kind of battering ram. Like, this is how I do it. And the world has to accommodate me. When in fact, that's not how things operate. You can't bend the world to your will. And I have found that the most useful framework in talking to leaders and learning from leaders is to frame the hardest aspects of leadership as paradoxes. Because you do hear so much contradictory advice. Like there's the, we're hearing especially now, the importance of humility. But you have to be confident as a leader. Never let them see you sweat. There's people say lead from the back. Others say lead from the front. You can go on and on and on, but everything is these kind of contradictions or paradoxes. And for anybody who's saying, well, should I do this or that? The answer is frankly both, but it depends. And being comfortable in that paradox helps explain to me that kind of X factor that you can see it just looking in the eyes of some leaders. They're kind of comfortable in their own skin. And as hard as those jobs are, and they've got all these problems coming at them from all different directions, they seem calm and centered. And I think part of the reason is that they understand that every challenge can be framed as a paradox and they can kind of flex to what the moment demands. And we've really seen that this year with COVID. This has been such a leadership challenge. 
There's times you need to be empathetic and understanding. And there's other times you need to pound the table and say, guys, everybody needs to line up and we need to go after this really hard right now. Fantastic. You're right. It sounds like that ability to be adaptive and really flex is key and to appreciate that. And I also love on your strategy point that you got to know where you're going and have that common view, but also your point about scoreboard and being able to operationalize it and pull it down and make it happen is often quite a challenge. In the role you're in now where you're surrounded by people doing executive development, are you seeing the same things as your research and that these are common areas also that people are coming into the shop to refine and develop? Are you seeing anything differently? I would say that Part of my learning curve since leaving journalism, going to consulting is I think a lot of companies are struggling with transformation and digital transformation. And that may be department of the obvious, what I just said, but I think it's particularly difficult for big legacy companies that maybe have operated a certain way over the years. And then to try to become a more agile organization, they then overlay on the existing operation, a kind of matrix organization, which just adds complexity and people have two or three bosses and there are more meetings and there are bigger meetings and just everything takes longer. And I think it's just, it is another reminder how important it is. I mean, it's such a cornerstone of the foundation of a company, this idea of the simple plan. Just, I cannot overstate how important it is it's such a leadership moment to be able to stand up in front of everybody and just answer that same question that little kids ask in the back seat, like, where are we going? How are we going to get there? And just so many companies struggle doing that. And without that clarity, everybody kind of defines for themselves what the strategy is. And it's usually within their own orbit of, I want to grow my part of the business rather than everybody pulling together. So I think that's certainly one aspect, just kind of seeing everything has kind of been reinforced. I mean, there were everything I learned from my more than 500 interviews, but in my kind of new chapter as a consultant, all those things have gotten reinforced and brought to life rather than discovering new things. I mean, we do a lot of work with leadership teams and you do discover that there are a lot of leadership teams that are team in name only. They may call themselves a team, but they don't act like a team. And developing a better appreciation for why that is and the struggles they have. And they are kind of universal struggles. You can't just take a bunch of high-performing people who are used to leading their parts of the operation, put them around the table and say, you're a team, and suddenly expect everybody to start working like a team player. That often takes a lot more work than I think people appreciate, and a lot more kind of intentional and deliberate conversations about how do we work together? And just opening up that conversation and at service now, I spoke to executives there. They went through this exercise of developing a social contract. And while they were working through the whiteboard exercise, the leadership team actually kicked the CEO out of the room and said, we need to talk among ourselves to figure out a few things before we bring you back in the room. And just having that kind of like, this is how we're going to roll together so that if somebody's behavior kind of falls outside those guidelines, there's this comfort level of calling each other out without anybody taking it personally. It's like, hey, remember, we all agreed on this. So again, simplicity, getting a team to work together as a team, these are big and universal challenges. Do you find too, has there been any change in leaders seeking out more 
development, their own executive development, or is it coming through still a push from the company saying it'd be a good thing to do and somebody's taking the lead to arrange it for the team or for individuals? I think there has been a slow evolution. I mean, that's my sense. If you sort of step back, I mean, decades ago was kind of the Ted Turner general model of lead follower, get out of the way. And when the industries were fairly stable, you could have the people who thought they had all the answers and probably got away with it for a while. But I think this pandemic has accelerated so many things, obviously digital transformations of companies, but I also think it's accelerated a lot of trends that were underway in leadership. Anybody who sits in front of their team and pretends to have all the answers is going to lose credibility overnight. I think it's become a much safer space for leaders to say, I don't know, what does everybody else think? Whereas some people may not have been comfortable with that in the past. You almost out of necessity have to do that and increasingly appreciate the power of diversity in every sense of the word, because these are tough problems. And to me, it's like a physics problem. You need different perspectives on the problem to be able to find the solution. So I think the idea of humility and empathy, embracing ambiguity, being comfortable in those paradoxes and in the gray, I think these are with us now. And I think they're going to stay with us for a long time. And the contrast is going to get sharper between the old sort of cigar chomping drill sergeant telling people what to do of the past. Any one to two tips, if you were to sort of say all of us as leaders on that journey to think about or do that you haven't shared already? There's this exercise that I first heard about from a couple of CEOs that I interviewed, and we've sort of built it out in a fuller tool at Merrick, but it's called the Leadership User Manual. And the basic idea is that if you kind of think of yourself as like a computer or vacuumers, like they all have user manuals on how to get the best from this product. And if you look at that through the lens of you as a leader, when you show up to your team, they don't know who you are. And it starts with this sort of very human insight that we're all a bit weird. We all have our quirks. We all have those things that make us grind our teeth that people do have these irrational reactions. And on the other side, it's like give people extra gold stars. Everybody is unique in that way. So the exercise is pretty simple about like, just why not be upfront with your team about yourself and what they should know about you? I mean, when I was managing teams of reporters and I would shift to different departments, on the first day, I would just be very upfront with the people. I'd say, look, I don't like corrections. And I understand mistakes sometimes happen. You're on deadline or you're not given the right information. But on simple things like spelling some people's names and places and dates and all that other stuff, I think it's our job to get that right. And I just don't like them. I didn't say it in a threatening way. I just sort of like, this is something you should know about me. And it's amazing the impact it has. And just being kind of vulnerable and open up front and say, look, this is who I am. And then people, they kind of get you and they don't spend all their energy trying to figure it out. And then ideally you make it a two-way street and say, this is what you should know about me. What should I know about you? And then you can do that around the whole team. And it's been a game changer. We have seen it time. You do that exercise with teams and people start being more honest about themselves and each other. It's like, now I get you. Now I understand why you are the way you are. That makes total sense to me. And you have a laugh about it and you can move on. That's probably one of the most powerful tools that we use at our firm. And again, it's sort of the individual and the team level. It really makes a difference. That's awesome. And you mentioned, so there is a difference. And I'd be curious in your own experience between the, let's say the knowing and the doing, you've researched, you've written, you've coached, 
but you've also been a leader, lived the leadership in the shoes. Have you noticed anything that was different between sort of the knowing and the doing in your own experience? It's a good question. Let me answer it this way. So to be a manager in a newsroom is a bit different than a lot of management jobs. And in many ways, it's kind of like being a department head in a university or something, in that the traditional tools that you have as a manager in most corporations, promotions, raises, performance posts, it doesn't really exist. And there's a lot of reporters, frankly, who don't want to be editors. They like saying, I didn't want to be an editor. I just kind of reached a point where I didn't want to work for another bad editor, to be completely candid with you. But being a reporter is a great life. I mean, you learn, you spend your time. It's like a continuing education. So there's a lot of people who don't want to want the promotions that you see at a lot of other organizations. And so it's kind of thing where you reach down and open up your management toolkit. and It's kind of empty. (laughs) Is it more influence than leading through influence? Yeah. and, And so in light of that, I mean, I just... What I tried to do is follow a few guidelines, which is really engage people intellectually. I mean, help them refine the ideas, get them excited about the ideas, and always trying. Part of my title was always an editor, but I've always felt that that is a misnomer because it focuses the role too much on the words themselves. It's like, you filed your story, now I'm going to edit it. I tried to approach it as much more of like a coach, as a talent developer, wanting to help them always get better. I always liked working with people who always wanted to get better. Not that I had all the answers, but I felt that was my role. And the other simple rule that I always had in mind, I mean, I was a reporter for half my career and editor for half my career. I just always tried to be the editor that I wanted when I was a reporter. And somebody who listens carefully, doesn't necessarily tell me what to do, but a good brainstorming partner. And I wish more managers would go through that exercise. One CEO gave me this framework. He said he always imagined an alternate universe where the person he was supervising was his supervisor. And I think that's really useful because you just think, look, I'm going to treat this person the way I would want to be treated if they were my boss. And again, I often say that if I had a magic wand and it could do three things with it, I'd get rid of racism, inequality, and bad bosses. Fantastic. I'm not being glib about bad bosses because I think there are far too many of them. And I think the impact that they have on people, people understand it, but I sort of feel like the impact is greater than we really appreciate just in terms of the emotional and stress, the physical toll that it can take on people, and also just a missed opportunity. I mean, leadership is a mantle of responsibility and You have so much power in your hands, not literal power to promote or fire, but power to really elevate people and help them have a great life. I totally agree with you. Adam, you've shared a little around this, but are there one or two key factors that you might look back and say, really, you'd attribute to your own success? Pretty curious. and You are curious. (laughs) I'm kind of... I guess, relentlessly curious in the sense of I can't turn off my brain. I'm just fantastic. always wondering why. Like, why is it this way? And why was that joke funnier than this joke? I mean, it's just like I'm always asking the sort of why questions. And I think that's just a habit of mine that has proved useful. Like, you do that enough for every, like, hundred why questions you ask, there might be a really good one. The kind of why that, why don't I sit down with CEOs and never ask them about a question? I mean, that's, I think, a lot of great ideas 
come from that kind of questioning mindset. The other thing I'd say, I, I probably got this especially from my father, but I think I'm a pretty good listener. And I spent a lot of my career interviewing people. And there are some techniques and tactics that I've learned and refined over the years. But all those are second to the fact that it's like, you've got to be interested. You can't fake being interested. And I've always liked that expression. It's better to be interested than interesting. And I also find it, it is interviewing people for me is probably the most efficient way to learn for me. I find that if you give me an hour with somebody who's had some interesting life experiences, I can learn a tremendous amount from that person in an hour compared to, say, spending 12 hours reading a book where the gems are kind of hidden and I have to search for them. This may just be a confession on my part that I'm an impatient reader, but I just find the simple act of asking people what they've learned, boy, you can just learn so much wisdom about life and kind of take that to heart. Well said. I imagine that you've been someone for whom maintaining a really robust network has been critical through your whole career. Any secrets on that front? Anything that you can share? Because I think it's so important today. And yet we find that not everyone is, let's say, fostering and leveraging their network along the journey. They're sort of kind of thinking about it when they need to. I think that's a great point. I will say right up front, I'm an introvert. So the idea of sort of networking with a group of strangers has never been comfortable for me. But I think if you kind of break down the networking, I've got a couple of thoughts on that. One is just living your life, you will meet people and you will develop some network. Just working with people, you will develop connections with people. That's going to happen organically. Looking back on my career, I should have been more intentional about that because I'm a bit of an introvert, because I've always just kind of felt like I'll work really hard. My work will speak for itself that I didn't build as many relationships for my career than I probably should have. If I had to do over, I would probably do it more because sometimes looking back, if there was a misalignment between what I thought and somebody in another department, that might have gone smoother if I had built more of a relationship. You have a coffee with somebody, a lunch. So I would say, again, I probably should have done more than I did. Corner Office has been <laughs> just wonderful for an introvert like me because I've met more than 600 people through that, many of whom have become lifelong friends. And because of the depth of those conversations, I feel like I can reach out to them. And it's also like, I don't have a the copyright on asking people questions. It always strikes me that if somebody's moving up in their organization, they could start an internal version of Corner Office, doing Q&A profiles of the top leaders of the company and that might be shared on the intranet. It's just a great way to meet people. And again, it's doing the interview is very, it's like a selfless act. Like you're just interested in the other person and people really respond to that. I think the final point about the career thing, and this is a point when I'm speaking to college grads, I often make is that you see a lot of people doing some pretty detailed career planning. They're in their 20s, they're going to say, I'm going to have this title by this age, and then I'm going to have that title by this age, I'm going to be making this much money. And, and that. And you start to get a few gray hairs and you look back and it's like, you kind of chuckle about all the plans. And what I always tell people is that ultimately, 
the path of your career is going to be determined by who you know more than anything else. It's going to be you're working with people in a context. If you do good work and they leave, they're going to bring you with them. And then when somebody calls them looking for somebody, like that's how your career is going to be determined by just doing really great work and all those connections. And you're going to get pulled along with people. You're going to get recommended. That's what's going to set the path of your career rather than you sitting down with a blank piece of paper and saying, you want to have this title by the time you're 30. Brilliant. And you may have just shared this, but is there any other piece of career advice that stayed with you throughout your career, something originated from you or you've heard or learned that you would share with us? Probably just to put a finer point on what I just said. So when I interviewed all those CEOs, my last question was always the same, which is what career and life advice would you give to new college grads? And I'll share with you my two favorite pieces of advice. So one was from a guy named Joe Plumeri, ran Willis, was insurance company, but he had this wonderful shorthand, which was play in traffic. And what that just means is get out there and do stuff and meet people. Because that's when the serendipity happens, the spontaneity, those connections that lead to other things. And I think especially in this age of where people are living on their phones and things like that, that we lost this idea of you have to have human interactions. And you need to push yourself and get out into the analog world, not the digital world, to have those experiences. And that's where the kind of magic of life happens. So that's point one. Point two she was the president of Brown University at the time, Ruth Simmons. And she said that one of her pieces of advice for students, I'm kind of paraphrasing, but it's essentially the idea that you should be prepared at any moment in your life to learn the most important lesson of your life. And that has just really stayed with me. And it's just a great reminder to always have your eyes open, your ears open. And like, just what an interesting idea. Like, what if it any single moment, you don't know what it's going to be, but any single moment, you might hear something from somebody, something might happen that could be the most important lesson of your life. And I've always just tried to keep that with me, like when I'm talking to people, and it's part of the reason why I'm naturally interested. Like, I honestly believe that at any moment I could hear something that could totally blow my mind. I love that. That is spot on. Adam, thank you so much. You have shared such richness from your research and your writings and all the connections you've fostered. There are many, many insights there. It's clear that you are really passionate about this and that you've stayed really curious. And we so appreciate that you've shared so much with us today. Thank you. Great questions and always enjoy talking to you, Mary. And we'll put in the show notes all of your current work to date and what's coming. So thank you a ton. Thank you. For more resources on this topic, Visit us on modern-career.com and on social media at Modern Career Pod. We'll include the sources noted in the episode in our show notes. Look forward to talking again very soon. Music